Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Yesterday evening I was walking uh, past a hotel, it was dark, and I looked up at the hotel and I could see, uh, like is often the case with a hotel, there's a whole bunch of windows in rows, and because it was dark it was quite obvious that in some of these rooms there was a light on, and it was like a, just picture an array of different rectangular windows, some of them have got the lights on, some of them uh, you look and you, you don't see the lights, it was a kind of irregular pattern in the window, and I I just felt as I was walking past that uh, the Holy Spirit was just saying this is a picture of the church, and this is a picture of what I want to do with the church, and you can think of uh, the people who make up the church as the different windows, and what I want to do is see one by one by one more and more lights going on. And there are different ways you can say what that means. Maybe you talk in terms of being filled with the Spirit. Maybe you talk in terms of a spiritual awakening or a personal renewal or different people have different language for it. But I think this is a word that God has for us, that one by one by one in this coming season, he wants to wake us up to switch the lights on to God and to what he's doing and to his purposes in the world. I thought it'd be good to share that with you this morning. And that in some ways is nothing to do with what I'm talking about in the preach. And in some ways it's everything to do with what I'm talking about in the preach, as we'll come to see. Um, Let me just pray. Lord, we pray that that this thing that uh, you put this picture in my head, I pray it happens this morning, that we see different lights going on in, in some of our souls, Lord. Would you wake us up to the things of God, where we've been snoozing, where we've been slumbering, where we've just kind of been in cruise control. Lord, would you, would you do something that just sets our souls ablaze with the light of your goodness and glory, Lord? Amen. So what I'm actually talking about today is marriage. We're talking about the origins of marriage. We're in our series in the early chapters of Genesis, where we're looking at, at how the world is the way it is. How did it come to be this way? What was it like at the start and how does that thread run through to today? I wonder if you can remember being at school, being in a lesson where the teacher had an activity plan that you had to work in pairs. And the teacher didn't assign you pairs, but you had to decide for yourself who you were going to work with. Do you remember how awkward that moment was? Like Sometimes it's fine. Maybe you were in a class and you were just sitting with one friend and it's easy. But a lot of the time it wasn't quite so straightforward. Maybe there was a friendship group of three of you or five of you and it's like, right, who's going to work with who and who's going to be the one who has to be out on their own. Maybe the whole class was an odd number. Did you ever be like the one person who was the odd one out in the whole class? And then like you've got to work in a three, but then the activity doesn't really work. Or you've got to work with the teacher. That was the worst of all, wasn't it? It it, it was pretty awkward when you have to find pairs and and see who's in pairs with who, who's the odd one out. That was just like a little um, kind of illustration. But Isn't it hard in real life as well? Isn't it hard when we think about this whole topic of pairing up, of couples, of singleness, of who's going to be partnered with who, who's going to be living life as a single person? How does that work? How do we 
engage with it. In fact, we spend so much time as human beings asking these kind of questions. We wrestle with them. We think about them. The number of times, right, as a, as a pastor, when you get a message from someone saying, hey, can we meet up and talk about something? You know there's a high probability it's going to be something to do with this. It happens all of the time. And the questions that we ask are things like, should I get married? Is that the right course of action for my life? And if we come to the conclusion the answer is yes, that leads us to another question. Well, okay, who should I get married to then? Uh, and then how, how should I find someone to get married to? Should I do dating? And if so, how should I do that? And should I try online dating maybe? And if I'm going to stay single in life, well, how do I do singleness well? And how do I process what it is to be a single person when I see all my friends around me coupling up and partnering with other people? And then what do I do with the desires that I have? Desire for friendship, companionship, desires for company, sexual desire. What do I do with feelings of rejection? around it. Or, or, or if you make the decision to marry, how do you do that well? How do you have a healthy marriage? How do you start sharing your life with another person? What about when it comes to emotional vulnerability, sexual intimacy? What about the arguments that you have? Uh, or what about the surprise after like a couple of weeks of marriage where you realise, oh, a lot of this is mundane. A lot of this is talking about who's going to go and pick up some new milk and things like that. And it's not quite kind of the, the big glamorous thing all the time that it was sold to you as. We ask a lot of questions. We think this through a lot. And most of the questions we ask are on a personal level. And most of those questions I'm not going to answer for you today. I'm not going to tell you if you should get married or not. I'm not going to tell you who you should get married to but we are going to step back and we're going to have a, a bigger picture view of what marriage is. We're going to look at how it fits. We're going to look at why God made it a thing in the first place. And hopefully that perspective might help us as we wrestle through on a more personal level. My real hope is that something will happen in our souls today. Not just head knowledge, but something in our souls. Because both marriage and singleness are things that are not an end goal in themselves. We ask these questions as though getting the answers to these things will sort our lives out. And yet both marriage and singleness are meant to draw us into something bigger, and that's the marriage of Christ and the church. And that's why the thing I started with about the hotel and the lights going on, that's why it has everything to do with this sermon. Because as our souls get drawn into what Christ is doing and being united with him, that's like the light going on. So hey, we're in Genesis chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, I would love you to turn there. And the first thing I'm going to draw out from, I'm just going to read half a verse. I'm going to read verse 18, and I'll stop halfway through it, because this is point number one. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. That's our first point. It is not good for man to be alone. Aloneness is not something that we're made for. We need to be really clear about that. And that word not good, it stands out when you've read Genesis. Because what we've heard so far in Genesis 1 is a rhythm of creation. God made this thing and he said it's good. And then he made this thing and he said it's good. And then he made this thing and he said it's good. And then he made this thing and he said it's good. Then he made humanity in his image and he said it's very good. So we've got good, 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 very good. And all of a sudden we're hitting the face with a not good. 
This is the first bit of the whole of creation that there's any kind of negative spin on, and it's aloneness. Now, let's just kind of understand what we mean here. We're not talking about a little bit of solitude. We all like a little bit of solitude once in a while. I mean, I reckon everyone in this room has done the thing where, like, you go to the toilet, but you make that trip last a little bit. You take a newspaper. Maybe you're at work. Maybe you're a parent and you've pulled this trick. But yet you kind of go and you just make that time a little bit longer because you like solitude. Now, introverts do that more than extroverts, but we all do it. Emma and I have this little joke that we do. And just understand this is a totally tongue-in-cheek thing. But um, often if one of us is going on a trip or on a journey, uh, then uh, we'll get a message. Emma will text me, for example, when uh, I'm off to some conference or something. And she'll ask me, are you missing me? And I'll tend to respond something like, well, it's been 15 minutes. I I saw you pretty recently. No, I'm, I'm all right at the moment. And then there'll be another message maybe an hour or an hour and a half after I've left, and it's like, are are you missing me? And it's like, well, I mean, I'm sitting on a train, I've got my book, I've got a cup of coffee. Actually, life's pretty sweet right now. (laughs) But it doesn't take long before the reply changes. You know, there's a couple of, like, tongue-in-cheeks, it hasn't been very long. But there comes a moment, it's like, I am, yes, I really am missing you. And that's just a little illustration there comes a moment for all of us, I think, when just that little bit of solitude, I'm on my own, this, this is all right, quite quickly turns to, no, actually, this is aloneness. This, this isn't all right. I'm, uh, I'm really struggling with being on my own now. I think this is something many of us experience. So I've known the same challenge a number of times in life. I remember graduating from university was a really big one because I'd been in this setting where myself and all of my mates just had loads of time. We were seeing each other all the time. It felt like there was real community. There was company. There was always people around. And then people graduated. Some people moved away. Some people got jobs that required them to give a lot of time to. Some people got married and were giving time to their marriages. And all of a sudden, actually, all these people who had been around a lot are not quite around as much anymore. How do I do this? How do I deal with this? This feels a lot more isolated than it used to. I remember when I moved to a new place. I moved to a certain part of London. I'd, I'd left my friends behind. I didn't really know anyone. And there was a group of people around in this new place, but they all knew each other. They were all doing things with each other. I remember just being in my house one night and I'm on my own here. There's no one to do anything with. I'm feeling the pangs of aloneness. And this verse tells us that aloneness is not good. Now, let's just be really clear what it's not saying. It doesn't say singleness is not good. It says aloneness is not good. In fact, later in the Bible, we're told the opposite. We're told that singleness is a good thing, but aloneness is not good. So whether we're single or we're married, we're not made to do life alone. Let's just be clear on that. And I want to quote a friend of Christ Church Manchester, Andrew Bunt. He wrote a great piece about this. Andrew's a single guy himself. But he says, all of us have a God-given need for human connection. We need the relationships where we can process what's going on in our lives, where we can have a laugh together, and experience the fact that we are loved. We all need those relationships, don't we? For those who are married, a lot of this happens in the context of the marriage relationship. A lot, not all, 
because no one person can meet all of our relational needs. Even married people need good friends. Now, I'm just going to pause on the quote, because that's such an important point. The number of people I've seen, and this is probably men more than women who do this, who get to the point where they're, they're in their mid-40s, and they're married, and they have no mates at all. And basically what they've done is they've thought, well, I'm married now. Uh, I, I've got the person who uh, I'm in relationship with, I don't need to keep investing in my friendships. I can, I can just let them fade away. It happens so often. It's not a good thing to do. Okay, so married people invest in friendships. Single people, make sure your married friends don't get away with this one, okay? Keep pursuing them for friendship. It's important. But Andrew goes on. He says, now, I know that married life can be hectic, especially if a couple have kids. I know that married people don't get the chance for deep heart-to-hearts every day, But the reality is that married people will generally get many more opportunities for those connection points, both the passing conversations through the day and the less frequent, deeper chats. As singles, we have to be more deliberate about making the opportunities for our relational needs to be met. They often don't happen in the course of everyday life, so we have to plan them into our diary. This takes time, especially if those friends don't live right next door and we've got to travel to see them. Make a point of having your aloneness needs met. Have friendships and make a point of investing in those friendships. It's not good for us to be alone. I think there's a particular challenge for all of us here. Because we're the church. We are the family of God. And God's number one antidote to aloneness isn't marriage. It's the church, it's us, it's this community. So let's step up and be the community of God, be the people of God, be family to each other. Let's look out for each other, let's reach out to each other. I remember years ago, I was down in London, I was part of a church, and I met this guy at church, and he was quite new, he'd come along two or three times, and I just said to him, hey, do you want to do something this week? Like, one evening, shall we meet up? And he says, yeah, that'd be great. So we met up, we went, we we had a bit of food together, we went to the cinema, I think one of the Batman films had just come out, and we both wanted to see it, so we went, we spent time together, and um, you know, I thought nothing of it, it was just quite a normal thing to do. And then somebody showed me, uh, about a week later, a blog post that this guy had written. Uh, And he mentioned, like, hey, last week I I went with a friend to the cinema, I went for some food. I've been living in London for over six months, and this was the first time that I've ever been invited to do something social with anyone. And it staggered me that what had been to me just a kind of normal throwaway everyday thing, let's just do something together, had such a big impact on this guy. We don't know how big the impact of that little bit of reaching out and spending time with people will be. And on this aloneness thing, it's easy, isn't it, for us to start thinking, why aren't more people reaching out to me? Why aren't people trying to draw me in? And I think the challenge that each of us should be thinking about is who can I get around? Who can I reach out to? Who can I be there for as a friend? So it's not good to be alone. Well, let's read on, because I want to hit our second point, and I'll read verses 18 to 22, and this is bringing it more now into the the marriage arena, um, because this point is there is a suitable helper that God's given. So, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. What we need to understand is that the whole pattern that we've seen so far is things being made in complementary pairs. Things being made in pairs that go together that give life. I'm going to quote Andrew Wilson. That's not the Andrew Wilson who's part of this church. This is his namesake down at King's Church in London, who says, the entire structure of creation is made up of complementary pairs which are distinguished from one another as part of God's creative design. In the beginning, the earth is formless and empty. And God's creative work consists of making distinctions between things or separating things to bring about order and life. We get light and dark, day and night, heaven and earth, land and sea, sun and moon, male and female. All of these things are in the fabric of creation. It's made as pairs, that as pairs come together, it's a life-giving thing. Got a bit of a problem, though, because you've got Adam doesn't have a pair. Adam's there on his own. It's like that school class, isn't it? The odd number of people in the class. And so you've got all the birds, you've got the fish, you've got the land animals. They've all got their pair. You've got the sun and the moon, the light and the dark, the heavens and the earth. Everything's in pairs. And there's Adam. He's on his tod. And this is not good. There's a problem here. And then you've got this odd scene where it's like all the animals are brought before him and he's got to name them. But also as he's naming them, he's concluded actually none of these work as the pair for me. I picture it as a bit like primordial tinder and you've got like all these candidates that swipe left, swipe left, none of these are right, none of these are the pair that is fitting. But God's promise in verse 18 was that I will make a helper who's fit for him. Well, there's two words in that saying. Helper and fit, because I think we need to understand both of them. So first one is a helper, because when I hear the word a helper, my first gut reaction is, isn't that a slightly demeaning kind of phrase? Isn't that just a, a term that says, well, okay, you can be like an assistant. You can be uh, kind of a bit second rate if you're going to be a helper. That's not what the word means. The word is ezer in Hebrew. Uh, It occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. Uh, And here's how Jo Saxton explains it. She says, the vast majority of those times, Ezra describes God. So we're not thinking something second rate here, are we? If it's describing God as he's delivering and rescuing, brackets, helping his people. It's a word conveying power and strength. A word with military connotations. Because the other couple of times, it's actually used of like armies that come to help Israel, powerful states. To be named Ezra is not some afterthought, but in his image and likeness. And what an image and likeness. Not someone deemed unable to do more than assist because of their weakness, but one who can help because they have the passion, power, and purpose to do so. So when we're talking helper, don't think demeaning. Think powerful, passionate, purposeful, Dread alongside. The other word there is fit. 
And depending on what translation of the Bible you've got, it might say someone who's fit, someone who's suitable, someone who's corresponding. These are the kind of words. And literally the word is Konegdo. And Konegdo, here's your little Hebrew lesson for the day. It's a compound word. The middle bit of it, the negd bit, means opposite. So someone who's opposite to him. The cat at the beginning says like, and then the O is him. So someone who's like and opposite to him. That's what made Eve the suitable partner for Adam. So what does that mean? She's like Adam in that she's human. He's just been uh, having all these animals brought before him and realising that they're not the pair for him. She is the pair for him because she's human. She's got this likeness to him, and yet she's opposite to him. So he's male, she's female. And and the whole biblical teaching on sexuality and marriage and uh, the fact the Bible teaches marriage is one man and one woman, it flows from this. It's not just an arbitrary thing, but it's flowing from the very fabric of God making the world in these pairs. But this idea of the complementary pairs, it builds into something even bigger than just a a creation pattern. It builds into where the whole world is heading. Because all creation is heading for the union in Christ. The heavens and the earth coming together that we see in the book of Revelation. All things are being brought together. And the problem is, we talk about marriage as though it's ultimate, whereas marriage is how it is, as a little parable, as a little illustration, as a little visual thing that points to what God's going to do in bringing the heavens and the earth together and uniting the church and Christ. That's what it's all about. So when we obsess about marriage in our earthly experience as the be-all and end-all, we've missed the point. We've almost idolised it if we let it be that without letting it point us into the bigger thing. Here's how I like to think of it. Think of it like a movie trailer. I remember back in the day when like, Avatar was the big blockbuster movie that everyone wanted to see. They'd done like, new things with 3D that no one had done before. And I remember a few months before Avatar came out, the trailers were starting to show after other films, and people were getting all excited, like, have you seen the trailer for Avatar? And it was a big point of discussion and they were good trailers they were exciting trailers and they truly showed us something about the movie yet from the other side now of the film being released it's a long time since I've heard someone ask me if I've seen the trailer for Avatar nobody's thinking about it anymore because now we've experienced the movie now we've had the thing that it was pointing to fully there and so it's done its job it's pointed us into the thing and then we've experienced the full thing So the implication of that, if our marriages are like uh, the the movie trailer pointing us to what's to come, well, we want to do our marriages really well then. We want them to be a true portrayal. We want them to capture something of the glory and the excitement and the goodness and the beauty of where the world is heading and the union with Christ. But we don't want them to become the most defining thing. They're not ultimate, but they're pointing in that direction. Let's go on to our final Point then, two become one, from verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Right, This sermon is not a here's some tips for a better marriage sermon. That's just not where we're going today. Nor is it a here's how we help 
people have better marriages. So, so if you were expecting that, sorry, I mean, you can Google it. There's blogs on that sort of stuff that you can read. What I would say, though, is if you know that at the moment in your marriage you need a bit of help, you're struggling, please do talk to someone. Talk to me and Emma, talk to Andy and Elizabeth, talk to your community group leaders, whoever you feel comfortable with. But make sure if you know you need a bit of help, do get the help. But I just want to pick out three things quickly from these verses today about this marriage between Adam and Eve. And number one is there's a bit of attraction, there's a bit of excitement there. Like Adam is buzzing. Do you see that song or poem or whatever it is that he's written for Eve? Like something inside his soul is kind of stirring when he sees Eve and he gets all creative. Finally, he's found a swipe right when he sees Eve. And there needs to be that. That's a, that's a component of what it is. I remember uh, when I first met Emma, she was doing a gap year with the church. And part of that meant that she was like, um, having to be like first there for church on a Sunday, having to help all the setup and everything like that. And guess who volunteered himself for the set of rotor? And guess who turned up to do setup even when he wasn't on the rotor? And like Emma's job was basically the store cupboard, so having to like organise it, find all the things, take them down. And guess who kept hanging out by the store cupboard? There's an attraction, there's an excitement, there's a being drawn in here, which is a good thing. And secondly, we see there's a, a realignment of identity. So uh, his primary identity, well, obviously for Adam it wasn't this, but it says, therefore, so this is the application, a man shall leave his father and mother. You're not part of the family unit you were anymore in the same way. That's not to say you don't love your mum and dad still, but you're no longer under that family unit, but a new one is starting, and he holds fast to his wife. That word holding fast is important. He said, we are together now, and this togetherness, is, we're in it for life. We've made vows. We've made covenant. We are together as one unit. I want to share with you what I think is the most important word in a marriage, and there, there are lots of candidates for this. Different people might suggest different things. I mean, very high on the list would be sorry. That's definitely up there, but I think it's we. I think the most important word in a marriage is we. I remember when I was engaged, and um, just to give you a bit of the chronology, uh, Emma and I, we, we got engaged in London, and then very soon after getting married, we had plans to move up to Manchester. So I was meeting a friend who was asking all about the plans, and what we were going to do, and how it was going to work, and uh, like, he, he grilled me, this friend. And then at the end of about an hour's chat, and he said, Tom, I've noticed something. We've talked for an hour, and you've kept using the word I, You've kept talking about what you want to do. You've kept talking about how you feel about things. And you've not made much reference to Emma. And that really kind of knocked me for six. And that shifted my perspective. Like, oh, wow, I need to really think differently. Because as a person who'd been kind of making my plans and uh, living my life, I'd been thinking, I, 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 I. And I needed to shift that and start thinking in terms of, we. This is what we are going to do. This is how we engage with things. This is how we feel about things. Thirdly, the, the point in there then is the, the sexual intimacy that comes with marriage. It says the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Sex is a good gift to be enjoyed. And yet these things are, are taught together, aren't they? Marriage and sex. Holding fast, being naked and not ashamed. In, in our culture, there, there'd be an idea to have the, the sex without the marriage, intimacy without commitment. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The two go together. 
And everything about uh, these complementary pairs coming together is perfectly symbolized in sex, isn't it? The oneness, the joy, the bringing forth of life that comes from it. Actually, we could say the same about the other points as well, that um, all of these things are pointing us to something bigger. If sex is pointing us to the, the ultimate union with Christ, so is the realignment of identity. So is starting to think in terms of we rather than I. That's not just a thing for married people to do, is it? As we engage in church, as we're a community together, a family together, isn't part of maturity in that? Stopping thinking just in terms of me, 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 and starting thinking in terms of we, the people together. And Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ. I'm not just thinking me, but I'm thinking we, Christ in me. And actually, that, that sense of excitement, that sense of longing for the presence, that sense of wanting to be around, like, like I was drawn to that stalker, but aren't we all drawn to the presence of God and to the excitement of being with him? You see, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, he quotes this verse. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. You see, marriage is pointing to something bigger than itself. So if you're here today and you're not married, and the question that you've got on your mind is, well, am I missing out then? If I'm not married, am I missing out? Because you've been talking this up. You've been talking about marriage and we've seen what a good thing it is. What I'd say to you is this. Remember, it's just a trailer. And remember that there's something bigger that it's pointing to. And remember that singleness too points to the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul puts the two side by side and teaches how both are good gifts from God and both serve the purpose of the gospel. One of the most frequent illustrations used in scripture about God's kingdom and particularly the return of Christ is a wedding banquet. I don't know if you've seen this come up again and again in the parables that Jesus told, in the teachings, in the letters, where Christ is the bridegroom and we, the church, are the bride. I want to read one such passage to you from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. So John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Think about what a high view of marriage we've seen. And then think about how all this is pointing to an even higher view of that day to come. Of that day when finally the church and Christ, this union, will be fully completed. This is what you've been invited to. This is what we've been invited to be a part of. It's not just the trailer. This is the whole film. We get to experience everything. It's not just the taster menu. It's the full meal. And how did that happen? Because of the cross. Didn't we read it's not good for man to be alone? And yet there on the cross, Jesus was utterly alone, forsaken by his friends, betrayed by one of his closest allies. His people who were meant to receive him rejected him, shouted crucify him, crucify him. 
And then even the father turned his face away. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not good for man to be alone. And yet there on the cross, Jesus Christ alone, suffering, bearing the sin of the world, bearing your sin and mine, he took it all. Why? So that we would never need to be alone. So we wouldn't spend eternity alone, but that we could be welcomed into relationship with God, that we could be brought in to this wedding feast. And then it said, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. Our lives now are about sending out those invitations. They're about filling up this banquet. If we're married, one of the ways we do this is by having a great marriage, by letting our marriage truly tell the story. If our marriage is about Christ and the church, let's tell that story well. Let's let our marriages truly reflect the gospel. And if we're unmarried, this gives us opportunities to serve the gospel, to give our lives for that cause. You know, marriage is about something more than itself. And our lives are about something more than themselves. So I want us to pray. Jamie, would you just play your guitar? Could everyone stand up, please? I'd just love to invite us to respond, to pray for us in this moment. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring to mind the strongest emotional feelings you have about marriage. And they might be different for different people in the room. For some of you, it might be that your marriage is great right now and the joy that you're experiencing in it. For some of you, it might be the anticipation of your wedding day to come and the marriage and all that will be. For some of you, it might be belongings. You'd like to get married one day. You don't have the opportunity right now, but there's something in you that really wants it. For some of you, it might be the disappointment that you are married and you had this high ideal for what it could be and the ways in which your marriage hasn't quite been that and hasn't quite lived up to all it could be. Whatever the feelings you have are, whatever the emotional attachment you have is, just bring that to mind now. And Lord, I pray for each of us that all this feeling that's strongly stirred by this thing, that's just a picture of a bigger reality, that all of that is channeled to that day when as the people of God we'll be at the marriage feast of the Lamb, we'll be the bride. Lord, all these longings in marriage, Lord, would you just light a fire in them and cause a stirring that we long for this union with you, that we long to draw close to you. Lord, we can experience this now in part and in the day to come in its fullness. Lord, let all of this do something with it, Lord. You know, you know that this is a big, powerful thing and you know that it's pointing bigger. Lord, would you just set this fire in our hearts now? Lord, would we be like those windows in that hotel room with the lights coming on, with affection stirred, with hearts longing for closeness and oneness with you. That's what we're made for, each one of us. That's what we've been invited into. And Lord, as we sing now, we step into that, Lord, and we enjoy this time in the presence of the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.